Hello again, my gorgeous listeners, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Glow West podcast. And we are here to chat all about sex, sexuality, and the body. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline West, and as always, I'm delighted to be part of the Tortoise Shack Network, where you can find all sorts of podcasts on politics, culture, society, trans rights, and of course, me with sex. If you like what we do, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise as it really does help to keep the mics on. Or you can pop over and rate and review on Apple and that goes a long way to promoting the podcast. So thank you very much. Today we are here to bust some myths about sex because God knows there is a lot of them. And I have such a great guest to help me do this today. Karishma Saroop runs an Instagram page, Talk You Never Got and is a comprehensive sexuality educator from Kolkata in India. She earned her undergraduate degree in geology and biology from Brown University in 2019, and she's also volunteered with Planned Parenthood to teach sex ed to high schoolers in the US. She's also conducted workshops and online webinars with top educational institutions and other groups of young people in India. When not working, she enjoys acting for theatre, hiking and writing poetry. Thank you so much for joining me today, Grishma. How are you keeping? I'm well. I'm so excited to be here. Cool. Oh, I, you, you know, I have to say your Instagram account is so much fun and just so accessible. But also I appreciate your dedication to Reels because I just cannot. <laughs> I can't oh my do it. goodness. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that you like the page. Um, but yes, reels are a double-edged sword. They're so fun to watch, but not fun to make. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like that, that's a behind the scenes, like thing of tearing your hair out and going, oh my God, technology. <laughs> but I know it works. Maybe, maybe it's, uh, we're getting old. I don't know. <laughs> no, don't say that. But I know you're right. <laughs> but still, oh my gosh. But yeah, I saw, I was looking at your Instagram and I saw you had some great myth busting things because I think people really do have a lot of myths around sex because we don't get decent sex education and myths kind of fill that gap in and I'm sure um, you know you've grown up in India but you've taught over in the US and I'm based in Ireland I'm pretty sure some of those myths are kind of the same all all around the world unfortunately (laughs) but do you think that would be the case? (laughs) Absolutely you'd be surprised I expected there to be very different questions coming from the different countries I've taught in and so many of the questions are exactly the same because everyone is confused because everyone's watching porn or everyone is um, consuming similar types of media with the internet. You know, it's not like you're dependent on cable for what the local information and media looks like. So it's interesting to have gotten the same questions both in, in the US and in India. Yeah, it, it doesn't change, I suppose. Even though sex is like, there's so many different ways to have sex and that's the joy mm-hmm. of sex but yeah we still kind of have the same myths I suppose one of the ones that I would get the most would be is it normal to do xyz and usually it's about frequency of sex so is it normal right. to only have sex twice a week or is it normal to have sex three times a day and my answer is always like if you feel good like it's fine like whatever happens but is that a question that you would get a lot Absolutely. And I'd actually say, in addition to, is it normal to have sex, especially when I'm talking to young people 
who might be like in high school or middle school, I get a lot of, is it normal to masturbate? How often should I masturbate? Um, will I get acne if I masturbate? You know, there's like lots of different questions around the frequency of even masturbation. That's true, actually. Yeah, I had a question the other day when someone said, is it masturbating three times a week too much? And I was like, you're probably doing it way less than a lot of other people. <laughs> oh, my likely. goodness. The acne yes. one is an interesting one. I didn't I didn't hear that one before. Oh, OK. I do think some of it is to do with like culture and whatnot. But cultural myths, I think, perpetuate some of these ideas so the acne one, I think, is just like teenage teenagers who have acne, wondering if their masturbation caused it. That's true. Yeah, I suppose the, the old way of looking at masturbation was that you would, you know, grow hairy palms or mm. you'd go blind or, you know, waste away. And then there's a guy called Tissot right. who said, like, you'll eventually waste away and die as a result of masturbation. <laughs> and you're like, That's oh, a, dear. it's a little bit kind of dramatic. But uh, oh. And what else, what else do you hear about masturbation that people ask you about? So in India, I've gotten a lot of questions around stamina, like physical stamina to exercise and whatnot. People seem to think that that would seriously impact them. But then one that's pretty universal is the question around whether masturbation affects someone's performance in bed and whether, you know, they run out of ejaculate if there's someone with a penis for example yeah wow okay and and do the girls ask those questions as well or anyone who has a vulva mm -hmm. so I think this is somewhat a cultural thing but I definitely saw bits of it in the U.S. as well where um, people with vulvas are less comfortable with talking about masturbation or even with the idea of masturbation and I'd love to hear what you think about that, because there's much more um, cultural acceptance in a weird way of men masturbating or young boys masturbating is something they will do, something their hormones uh, will account for. Whereas with women, it's just this like complete erasure of sexual agency and seeking pleasure. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's like good girls don't do that. And it's like, well, yes. the opposite then means that you're a bad girl for doing that, which is obviously rubbish. No one is bad because they get pleasure from their bodies. Yes. And it's it, really upsetting. It is. It is. Like, uh, do you find like in India, like over here, like I suppose there may have been, you know, a Catholic kind of hangover of, you know, Catholic guilt and shame is pretty strong. Mm -hmm. um, I know there's different cultures and religion in India, but would you find that that would come into play a little bit there for, for girls and people with vulvas? I think, I don't know if it's very direct. I can't say like it's Catholic guilt. But I think there's a lot of colonial hangover when it comes to the culture here. And so very broadly speaking, there's a large emphasis on purity culture, even if like traditional scriptures, carvings, etc. Um, within India didn't have those same notions. But we're all about the purity culture in the mainstream these days. Yeah. Does that link into periods as well? I thought I read in, in things like the Hindu um, religion that periods were not 
a, a dirty and I'm using massive air bunny quotes around that word um thing yeah. it was it was to be celebrated and and you know period sex was to be celebrated as well whereas there's a lot of cultures in the world where period sex is like the worst thing you could do again air bunny quotes around right. that statement so would that be true yeah. do you think so actually it's interesting firstly hinduism is like practiced in so many different ways around the country just like every other religion is around the world but um i think definitely some branches of hinduism thought that it you know periods are sacred period blood is sacred all of that but today and i don't know how far this tradition goes back but there's ideas that like so if someone's menstruating they should not enter a temple if someone's menstruating they should not enter the kitchen in the household and so there is a lot more stigma now than there was maybe than there was before but who really knows what was there before yeah it's such a pity isn't it because it's, it's something that's like what 50% of the world have to deal with on a re- very regular basis absolutely oh, god okay and then you also have some really great information on your instagram about myths around condom use so what would be some of the most frequent questions you would get around that i have so many myths on condom use i every day i think of a new one so um i'd say the first one is that condoms i guess this one is not so much a myth as like people just don't know this that you should pinch the tip when you roll down on a condom and there are like grown adults who don't know this and so for those of you who are listening if you pinch the tip and roll down you leave a little bit of room for ejaculate and that reduces the likelihood of condom failure so that's the most common misconception i'd say Then the second most common misconception, I guess it's I don't know if it's common, but it's just a misconception that you should put on two condoms instead of one, which absolutely not. You will not be safer with two condoms because with two condoms there would be friction which would cause tearing and therefore absolutely a bad idea. One condom is designed to protect you appropriately. That's what yeah. I heard growing up. It was like, oh, you know, just for extra security, you have to wear two condoms. And I was like, no, oh, that doesn't sound kind of right. So not at all. No yeah. way. Wow. <laughs> and also like that adds up to be like very expensive <laughs> if you're doubling up as well as the like complete health and safety risk of, of that. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And uh, where do you think that comes from? Like why... Why would we think that two is better than one? Like they're not sold as as two pieces. They're sold as one pieces. You know, it's so funny. I've heard the phrase double bagging. Um the way you double bag at a grocery store. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> if I had to take a wild guess, I think you I might guess, be right. Yeah. Right. So people are like, "Oh, they're double bagging for extra safety, but your penis is not your groceries." Uh, <laughs> So would not recommend it. Uh, I think and, you need that on a t-shirt. Your penis is not oh, your groceries. <laughs> oh my goodness. But but also like I think part of it is that people just equate condoms the material. They're like, "Oh, it's like kind of plasticky, rubbery, um I guess similar to a grocery bag." But actually they're two totally different materials. Condom 
condoms and their latex or if they're non-latex, they're tested extensively for being stretchy, for being durable, and they're designed to not fail if used correctly. Absolutely. And tested to be safe around your body. Because, you know, again, it was kind of an urban legend when I was growing up that if you didn't have a condom, you could use a crisp packet. I don't like you you call them crisps in in India. Yeah, I get what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah. And I just thought there's so much. No, I don't know if anyone ever did that, but it was just the urban legend that was going around. But I was thinking, first of all, you have to get that inside you if you if you're the one with the vagina. And like, that seems like it's sore. But also, if the penis is going in there, and it's like salt and vinegar crisps or something, like that's just gonna sting or oh my god, ah, like, I really hope nobody did that. But you know, maybe it came from somewhere. and Somebody right. did it. But yeah. Oh. The other one I can think of is that people think they don't need condoms for oral sex. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that one is really confusing, I guess, to people because they're so condoms have a dual purpose. They prevent STIs and they prevent contraception. I mean, sorry, they prevent pregnancy Mm. um, and provide contraception. And so if there are so many STIs that transmit orally as well, And if you're only using a condom for penetrative sex, but are having oral sex, you're still putting your risk, uh, uh, putting yourself at risk for exposure to STIs. Yeah, that that's a huge one. I think that the use of condoms in oral sex, whether that's on a penis or a vulva or whatever, they're quite low. And I I think that's really shocking because we now have gonorrhea that is like getting pretty resistant to antibiotics and you can get gonorrhea through oral sex. And do you want gonorrhea in your throat? No, that's not going to be. <laughs> Probably not. Thing. Yeah, but well, this is where flavoured condoms really kind of can make that experience because the taste of a regular condom isn't that great. But like I found once the other day that were like chocolate souffle. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's kind that's of fancy. Yeah. yeah. And or would flavoured condoms be regularly available in India as well? Or is it more the, yes. the regular ones? Yes, okay. they would be. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. And it, well, I know over here to get dental damps for you, son of vulva, is, it's like almost impossible. Like it's just not really a thing over here. So I always advise people just to cut up a condom and use that because some people use cling film and it's like that's not made for a body. Like and it's made for wrapping your sandwich after work. Like it's not made right. for for vulvas. So yeah. And, and it's interesting. There's certain types of cling film which are like which allow like really tiny microbes through. So it's not entirely safe. And yes, cutting a condom is definitely the thing I recommend to people here as well. In the US, I found that dental dams were pretty readily available. But in India, it's just absurdly expensive because it's imported and not that common. There's not a lot of conversation about it. And so cutting, cutting condoms is definitely Absolutely. the way to go. If you're in a in a situation where yeah, you can't they're not really available. And but I think that also speaks volumes about, you know, oh like oral sex on vulvas. It's just apparently not a high priority as opposed to flavoured condoms for penises. Like you can kind of see that disparity there and, and what that says about oral sex for vulvas. Right. Absolutely. And I think also part of it is what we talked about, the fact that people don't think that oral sex means they cannot get an STI. 
There's plenty of um, STI transmission between lesbians and queer women and, and everything else. So, yeah, we have to bring that in. I think the myths about condom sizes as well are really important to address. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I used to have this experience um, when I, I've done a lot of teaching in person in the U.S. And I say that because COVID. But in the U.S., when I would like hand out, not hand out, we were allowed to make condoms available to students. And so I would put out, say, a bowl of condoms. And the all the young boys would run and grab like the big uh, golden magnum extra large condoms. And I'm looking at them like, okay, interesting. But let's take a step back and talk about how size is usually to do with width or girth, but not to do with length. And everyone's minds are blown when they hear that because um, most condoms are designed to be really stretchy. And if you look it up on Reddit or just Google it, people have stretched condoms over their arms, over their legs, and like literally like stockings, put condoms up to their thighs. And so condoms are really, really stretchy. So if anyone ever says to you, oh, I'm too big for a condom, they're lying. Mm-mm, definitely. <laughs> right. And and yeah, some people do need extra large condoms if they do have a thicker, I guess, in terms of diameter, a thicker penis. But otherwise, a regular condom works in most situations. And if you're wearing the wrong size, it's more likely to either break if it's too small or slip off mm-hmm. if it's too big. And that's where we were leading into unwanted pregnancies and unwanted STI transmission also. Absolutely. I heard yes. that in, in India, you know, like the average size over in the UK and Ireland is generally about five inches and India might be mm-hmm. a little bit smaller, perhaps. But I heard that a lot of the men were doing the same thing, like you were saying, they're all just grabbing the giant condoms and then they're mm-hmm. slipping off because it, it's just not a biological thing that maybe a lot of Indian men are eight inches long or whatever happens to be. So would that be true? I actually tried to look this up about penis size and all the studies I could find were themselves called this call their results kind of questionable because firstly a lot of penis size is self-reported and so we don't actually know what someone's reporting and when it's not self-reported when it's a clinician or someone measuring someone else's penis it's usually kind of self-selective to who shows up to these studies and people who have more confidence around penis size are more likely to show up for these studies. And so I am of the semi-firm opinion that it's not important at all to think about penis size. Just remember that if you're thicker than a toilet paper tube, um, then you probably need an XL condom, but otherwise a regular condom should fit. And that, it's a really nice thing to like try as well. Like the Lene Marie, who I've had on the podcast before, she had a great graphic. Um, I don't know if it's on her Instagram or Facebook or whatever, but it was something like you put in the condom over a watermelon. And it was like, yeah, it fits, but it's not necessarily comfortable. So it's important mm-hmm. to try different brands and different sizes. And there's a lot of people who go their whole life wearing the wrong condom size and just think, oh, it's just meant to be a bit uncomfortable. And it, it doesn't have to be that case. Right. And there's so many different types these days. You can get extra thin condoms, you can get textured condoms, ripped condoms. And I think 
trying is so important also just because you get to take charge of your safety if you know what condom is right for you and you buy them and take them with you to a sexual interaction instead of just relying on condoms that are available somewhere yeah just magic condoms that that turn up when you're about to have sex and go oh there they are that's, that's kind of grand that would be nice yeah I think it's also important I suppose to remind people at that point since we're talking about condoms and STIs that like they don't protect against all STIs and I, I think mm-hmm. there's a few people who are shocked by this because I know with our sex education here it's like oh protect yourself against STIs wear a condom and it's like yeah, you're missing a few points from that conversation. <laughs> right, absolutely. And I think that's what ends up happening because there's so much stigma around STIs that people don't want to acknowledge or talk about things like cold sores and herpes, which can be transmitted just from kissing or sharing a drink even. Um, and the fact that there are some STIs which transmit through skin-to-skin contact. So, you know, you could be using a condom, but in under unfortunate circumstances, you could still be transmitting. And so part of moving away from that is really removing some of that stigma around having STIs or knowing that you have an STI so that people can feel safer to disclose that they have STIs or even feel safer going and getting tested because I think that when we make a big deal about the stigma around STIs, people are afraid and they don't want to get tested. They don't want to find out. They're like, oh, no, if I have an STI, my sex life is over, which is just simply not true. Your sex life is not over if you have an STI. An STI is not the end of the world. That's another myth. People think an STI is the end of the world. It is not. It is not at all. I'd say like, okay, I don't know about half, but a lot of STIs are treatable using antibiotics and others can be managed pretty well so that you can still have a safe and healthy sex life. Absolutely, absolutely. I've been telling that to my students that like I've always used condoms and barrier methods and I still caught an STI because it was skin on skin contact. So mm-hmm. you can't do anything about that. So there's no such thing as safe sex. It's safer sex. So we're minimizing the risk. And once I got treated, it hasn't impacted my sex life after that. So and I don't feel any shame or stigma because the analogy I use, it's like um, if you're standing next to someone at the moment, you might catch COVID. If your gentles are next to someone else, you might catch an STI. And that's literally it. It's just part of being human. We carry these things around with us and sometimes you get them and sometimes you don't and it's not that big a deal like like you said it's not life ending it's not sex life ending either right and I think COVID and all the detailed conversations around virus transmission have been really helpful to um, explain STI transmission because suddenly people are thinking about surface contact and modes of transmission and Uh, contact tracing, things like that, which were not common words or thoughts before. And people would feel intimidated. Oh, my goodness, I got chlamydia. Do I need to? There's a whole TV show about that. Um, (laughs) Where this guy, I forget what it's called, but Uh, this guy got chlamydia. And the whole show is just him tracing back all of his partners to tell them. Okay. um, Right. To get tested. (laughs) And 
uh, with COVID, it's just everyday measures that we take. If someone tests positive, if they're nice people, they will tell the last people they saw. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and no shame or stigma. It's just that's just conditions of being human and having sex and having your genitals close up to someone else's genitals. That's kind of where we're going. I know that conversation about contacting partners and stuff can be kind of awkward, but I think one of the biggest myths I hear is that, oh, asking for consent is always going to be awkward. And it's like, no, definitely not. It can be really, really hot as well. So would you hear this myth too? Absolutely. A lot of people look at my slides on consent and say, no one actually says that. Or how can I say that? That would sound so lame, so awkward. It would kill the mood. And my answer is no, then you're saying it wrong. Because in reality, if you're really, really specific about what you want to do with someone else sexually, it can sound really, really hot. Imagine phone sex. It's like that. People can get aroused just hearing the words of you describing what you want to do. And so I think that this is just a misconception because people don't see the scripts, like the social scripts for how to ask for consent in popular culture and media. Things just happen and I'm doing bunny quotes now oh my gosh Um, and in porn and in Hollywood and TV and stuff as well a lot of TV it's like you as there's a magic moment and someone has to just imagine that now's the right time to kiss someone else and um of course that's kissing but there's so many more steps to it and I think that that's really problematic because we cannot imagine what's going through another mind the mind reading part yeah it just it infuriates me because it, we're setting people up to fail because if you have your view of sex and what sexual pleasure is and then you're with another person they've got their view and all of a sudden you have to figure out each other and like that's part of the fun but also kind of terrifying for a lot of people mm-hmm. to go okay what do I do they're not telling me anything and I'm not communicating like it's like fumbling in the dark Absolutely. And I think what is really dangerous about not explicitly asking for consent is that sometimes our bodies and our brains have disconnects or our minds rather. And so someone could be turned off and not want to have sex, but because of a person like coming on to them, they might still get erect or their vagina may still get wet. And that is not a sign of consent because their mind might be still saying no, but it's like a body response to look aroused. And so I always tell people that assume that the person is saying no until they say loud because you cannot know what's going on in their heads, even if you think you do. I think I am so glad that you mentioned that because there's a lot of sexual assault survivors and who feel some sort of like guilt or shame or oh was I actually into it because I had an erection or because I was wet and you know oh maybe it was an assault because I had an erection or something like this and I I think that it's such a destructive way to think about it because like you're saying it's just your body it's just you know something it's what happens and it doesn't mean consent and doesn't mean you're enjoying it it just means 
you've just got some biology kind of going on and that's what you do. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think we really need to um, expand our conversations about sexual assault and all the different responses. And sometimes we might actually focus, and I've been guilty of that as well, of focusing on maybe the mental responses. So fight or flight or fawn or freeze, but maybe not thinking about, oh, what happens if I'm being sexually assaulted and I get wet, you know, things like this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I'm so glad and delighted that you brought that up because I think there's a lot of people having that experience of, of confusion afterwards and like what went down with my body and things like that. So um, I don't think that can be shared enough really, unfortunately Mm -hmm. for that. So yeah. yeah, and actually, legally in India, that's like muddy waters because people think that if, say, the vagina secreted fluid, then it was consensual. And I mean, without getting into the laws around it, we we know that that is just not true. Yeah. So I agree; it's really important to talk about this more. Absolutely, and it's that's bizarre that that's in a law but oh Mm -hmm. yeah like sexual assault laws are um not fit for purpose shall we say in quite a lot of countries but um absolutely yeah and I, I think that the consent talk to go back to that I think you know we might think of consent as like you have to go oh may I now have your consent to do this and yes you may now have my consent to do this and it's like yeah no not many people talk like that but you know if I tell the students I'm like you know what how you give consent you can say fuck yeah like that's consent like that's Mm -hmm. and that's also really hot depends on how that's said as well right like you don't have to say may I uh, penetrate your vagina you can say hey would you like to fuck if you and that person have the same definition of fuck right and I think part of consent is planning ahead of time if if you're having sex and you know you're gonna have sex with someone later then it's really great to like have a conversation outside of the setting of being aroused and whatnot um just to set your boundaries and say, hey, I am really comfortable with oral sex, but I do not want to try anything else. Or, hey, I'm currently on birth control and therefore I'm okay with X risky behavior. And so having these conversations ahead of time is really useful to take some of that pressure off. And of course, things can change in the moment consent is reversible and someone may decide midway through on the day off at showtime they don't want to do it and that's okay but part of consent and part part of learning about consent is learning that if someone says no to you or turns it off it's not about you and don't feel bad about it like there's a million other factors going on for that other person in their heads and so yeah, that's a that's a much less talked about part of consent. Absolutely, absolutely. I th- I think we fail people. I think we while the slogan of like yes means yes and no means no is obviously great, but like there's so much more to consent mm-hmm. and and um, empowering people to advocate for consent in their lives and to understand what they're consenting to. And I think we need to have a more in depth conversation about it. It's like with drugs. It's like saying don't do drugs. And it's like 
yeah, you need to have a bigger conversation than that. Like, right. obviously, that's one sentence, but there's so much more to it. And, and, you know, empowering people to understand what it looks like in actual reality, you know, when you're in bed with someone or whatever and, and things like that. So because, yeah, like you said, if you're asking someone, hey, do you want to fuck? Well, they might think, OK, then we're going to do oral, then we're going to do penetration, then we're going to do anal pl- penetration. And for you, that might mean, oh, well, actually, I just wanted this one thing. But because mm-hmm. we, we all define sex in very different ways and it isn't necessarily A plus B equals C sometimes. Absolutely. And that actually, this thing of defining sex in other ways reminds me of another really common myth around virginity. I think virginity yes. as a whole concept is a myth. And I just want to say there is nothing you're giving away There's nothing being taken from you. There's nothing you are taking from someone else. And hopefully there isn't a lot of pain or blood because that's another uh, idea that exists. Yeah, that your first time is going to be painful and there's going to be so much blood. You're going to bleed all over the bed sheets and all this kind of thing. Right. And, And also I think it does a huge disservice because there are so many tests for purity that exist in some cultures around, okay, if I put penetrate you with two fingers and you don't bleed, then you're not a virgin. Not true, because I think what people think and the common myth is that the hymen covers the entire vagina. It is this unbroken seal with no holes in it. Nothing shall pass until broke until the seal is broken, which is a common like metaphor used here. And that's just not true. We all have different types of hymens, which have different types of openings and coverings and cover different percentages of the vagina. And that's how your period blood leaves your vagina. Because if you didn't have openings, then people who actually do have completely closed hymens have a tough time with period blood and tampons. And so I think it's really important to remember that hymens are all different and they stretch and for some people when they're stretching a little extra there might be a little bit of blood the first time but it's not lots of bed sheet soiling yeah it's It's not like a five-day period or anything like that yeah absolutely when I was growing up I was told that all the books and well the one book I read about sex (laughs) um, as a teenager it was like oh but you you may break your hymen going horse riding or Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I was like, I've never been on a horse. Like, is this the only way? Because it was the only thing suggested as like that's so horse funny. riding. I was like, is this just for rich people? <laughs> like, because that's, you know, <laughs> that's where that goes. But um, yeah, like, I, you know, the first time I had sex, I didn't bleed. So I was like, oh, what does that mean? Like, does that like, did I have a hymen? Like, where did something go wrong? You know, like, so I was expecting that pain and that blood because that's what I was taught. It was like, oh, it's going to be so painful and, and there's going to be all this blood and it wasn't. So it was like almost kind of weird in one sense. Yeah. Right. And the other thing that comes with this virginity myth is that people say, okay, if I'm not having penetrative sex, I am a virgin. So they will have oral sex. They will have anal penetrative sex they will uh you know do outer sex or outer courts whatever 
uh, else that comes other than vaginal penetrative sex in order to preserve the hymen or in order to preserve their virginity. But technical virginity is also just a question mark because firstly, as we said, virginity doesn't exist. And secondly, sex as or fucking can be defined in so many ways. Some people may never, ever have penetrative vaginal sex. Some people want to, may have oral sex their whole lives and that's it. Some people may not ever have, some people may be a person with a penis, might not have sex with someone with a vagina. Absolutely. And like are queer people virgins their whole lives? Like because they don't right. have a penis in <laughs> vagina? Like it doesn't, when you look at it like that, you go, actually, it is really stupid. Like it's not a, it's not a real thing. <laughs> Wow. Absolutely. And so I love to tell people to rephrase virginity to sexual debut, which is... Yes. Yeah. It's a way cooler expression anyway. It's way cooler. I love that I've learned that from all the sex educators out there. Yeah. But sexual debut helps you firstly choose what is your debut. Because the other myth that exists is that virginity is a choice, but the the fact is that there's, given the statistics, there's a lot of people who don't choose the first time they have their sex and experience abuse and assault. And so that's the other reason why saying sexual abuse, where you get to decide what your first most meaningful experience is, is so important because that gives people the agency to say, I had sex and I loved it. Or I had sex and it wasn't that great. But hey, I chose to have sex. I'm so glad you're saying that. Absolutely. Like people might feel it's something that's been stolen from them. But the fact that if we redefine it like that, then it means we can redefine and bring in agency and power into that. So I'm so glad you said that. And I think... um, you know, the way that I would I would like to kind of go forward with sex education is recognizing, you know, the role that trauma plays in so much of our sex lives and past, present, future relationships and things like this. And so if if your whole thing about virginity is caught up with trauma as well, that can have a huge impact on people throughout their whole sexual experiences. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I think the more we talk about it, the more we empower people to maybe relook at it or redefine what, what's gone on for them. So I think it's, it's hugely powerful to do that. Yeah, I agree. Um, one of the questions that was submitted in by um, a listener was around the idea of vibrators and can they decrease sensitivity? Can you get addicted to a vibrator? Um, I mean, some vibrators are pretty good, but I don't think you can get <laughs> addicted as such. Right. So I think, well, I don't think they decrease sensation. Vibrators might get you, get you used to experiencing certain types of sensation that get you off or that you enjoy. And I think that's where maybe that myth comes from. But it will not decrease sensation. You can have any type of sex and probably have the same level of sensation from different types of rubbing, licking, fingering, whatever you want to do down there. And what was the second part? Um, That um, you can get addicted to it. So it's, you know, you're not going to want to have in-person sex if you've got this amazing vibrator that gives you earth-shattering orgasms. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, hey, if you don't want to have 
a sex with a person ever again, go ahead, do it. That's okay. Have your earth shattering orgasms. But there's so many other things I want to say there. One, you can use your vibrator with someone else. <laughs> if you are having sex with someone else and whatever you're doing with them is not getting you off the way you, you usually get off, use your vibrator in bed. Use mutual masturbation. Use um, different toys in different ways on different parts of your body, on their body. And be mindful of putting a condom or washing the toy before sharing it. But other than that, you should share your toys if that's what you're worried about. And then the other thing is that I think that vibrators lend one type of stimulation. But when you're with another person, there's a whole body attached to that, <laughs> what would have been a dildo, right? And I think that that for a lot of people is exciting to get touch on different parts of their bodies, to get the warmth of another person, to get the emotional intimacy that comes with it. And sex involves intimacy, even if it's a one night stand, even if it's uh, outside of a romantic context. And so for a lot of people, that intimacy is exciting and has a different appeal from a vibrator. So if you're someone who enjoys that intimacy, then go ahead and have fun with your vibrator, but you will also have fun when you're with the person. Absolutely. I, I think every time like an article about real dolls and sex with robots comes up, everyone's like, oh, men are going to be replaced by robots. And it's like, you know, like technology will only give you so much. And then like the joy of a warm, squishy body is a, a whole pleasure in itself and communication. And, you know, someone has to cook your food afterwards. <laughs> Maybe the robot <laughs> might not do that for you. So yeah, absolutely. Um, and then maybe one of the final myths, um, I, you know, it's actually come up quite a lot lately um, when I'm talking about masturbation. It's a p people who have vulvas and they're saying that, you know, it's really hard to come during a penetrative sex. And this mm -hmm. is really common. And, you know, sometimes it's biology, sometimes it's psychological. Where, where do you stand uh, on this? Because I think it's something like 75% of people with vulvas struggle to have an orgasm through penetrative sex, whether that's a penis or a sex toy, whatever it happens to be. I think that there are so many misconceptions around the vagina itself, and that contributes to the inability to attain pleasure. Because firstly, people think even something as basic as they think they pee from their vagina, or they think that, um, in, that insertion is the only thing that will get them off. And that's not true because penetration is one thing, yes, but the clitoris is the seat of pleasure for everyone who has a vagina. And by that, I don't mean just the part of the clitoris that is exposed under the clitoral hood, but um, it also involves the entire structure of the clitoris that exists around the vagina. And penetrative sex, when it is pleasurable, is pleasurable because it provides indirect stimulation to the clitoris from inside the vagina. And so I think if we reframe, reframe our conversations and stop saying that 
you know, it's it's sex with someone with a vagina, but it's not saying it's sex with someone with a vulva or someone with a clitoris, then we will put more emphasis on the clitoris because then we will remember that it is the clitoris that is so analogous also to the way that the penis is structured. And if you see the way that they develop in the embryonic stage, they are very similar and arise from the same initial body parts. And they're not all that different. And also, I think the other important thing to remember is not everyone has like this binary genital of like a clear, this is a vagina and this is a penis. There's a large percentage of the population, probably larger than you think, that has somewhere in between or had somewhere in between and then had surgery, maybe when they were a baby. Um, and there's a lot of activism uh, against intersex surgery. But I think it's important to acknowledge that different people's bodies are different. And it requires us to firstly focus on the clitoris when it comes to people who have clitorises. But secondly, to remember that you should if something's not working out, like if penetrative sex is not working out, then keep trying, keep experimenting and something else might work out. Absolutely. And this is where masturbation comes in so handy, no pun intended or well, maybe, but that if you get to know your own body, you you know, okay, well, this doesn't work for me, but this does work for me. And then you can communicate that with your partner. And, you know, I think sometimes if we're able to do that, our partner is usually like, oh, thanks, like, great, because I don't have to, like, guess now and figure things out because the, it, it can be kind of scary figuring out someone else and go, OK, like, this is a whole new set of gentles I'm working with here. Like, what's going on? What do I do? And if you just tell people, I think that that takes off a lot of the, the pressure to have, you know, a satisfying sexual experience. Right. And I think that there's two different pieces to that also. Firstly, it's really important to remember we are in charge of our own pleasure and should not rely on someone else to give us pleasure. But at the same time, like the second piece is that, okay, yes, we do. It is a fact that in sex, we want pleasure from someone else if it is partnered sex. And I think it comes back to that conversation about consent where you can literally just ask someone, hey, how does that feel? Do you want more of that? me to go faster slower like and maybe your response is more of fuck yes or keep going or don't stop but and that's all sexy by the way but I think that's why it's so important to keep talking and communicating about those things even if it's like a thumbs up or a thumbs down that could be one way to do it I've I heard from someone that you could do a game where you're like rate from one to ten how this feels <laughs> and Try a few different things before you settle on the 10 out of 10 one. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. And if your voice is wobbly and shaky around a seven or an eight, <laughs> that's a that's a good sign that you're in the right direction. So fab. Uh, listen, Krishna, you're just, you're, do you know what you are? You're a breath of fresh air. And I just love that there are people, people your age, I sound like your granny now, but out there in the world, just giving this lovely, calm, fact-based sex education. And I'm just 
Oh, it just, it just makes my heart just swell to see people like you out there doing this amazing work and managing to do it via reels and, and, and stuff like that. So that's amazing. Um, where can people find you if, if they want to stay in touch or reach out with any questions or anything like that? Absolutely. So Instagram is the best place to find my content. And my handle is at talk you never got. If you would like to email me, that's another great way to reach out. You can email me at talkyouneverGot at gmail.com. Brilliant, and brilliant. I also made a LinkedIn, but I think those two are the best ways. Oh, excellent. Yeah, LinkedIn is, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's not the best sometimes, but yeah, Instagram is way more yes. fun until we get kicked off it, but however, we'll keep going <laughs> until we can. So brilliant. Yes. I absolutely urge all the listeners to reach out cause, and, and just follow because it's just lovely, fun, colourful content. And that's what we like to see when it comes to things like sex. So thank you so, so much for chatting to me today. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. We covered so much ground today. And I know that the conversation about myths is endless. Because oh my gosh, every yeah. topic, mm-hmm. every topic, I can just do a myths section. And Absolutely. that could be a whole lesson. Yeah, well, look, we'll have, <laughs> we'll have you back for part two soon enough and we'll get Definitely. you there. So fab. Definitely. Oh, thank you so much. And and thanks, Emil, to all the listeners. I really hope that you learned something today and, you know, maybe pass it on to your partners and and see if they learn stuff as well, because we all learn by sharing some good information. So um, like I said, at the top of the hour, if you want to support the podcast, it's patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. You can follow on Spotify or rate and review. If you want to DM me, it's Glow West podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. And I'll catch you next week. Bye.